Well, you know the real test of an excellent book or movie? It is, I believe, it's replay value. Some movies, you know, for example, you, you'll watch once, and then you know you'll, you'll never watch it again. There's no depth, there's no substance, or a really good story. And, but once you know the ending and you know the twist, it just it's never the same. But an excellent book, though, has replay value where even if you've read it before and you know the ending, it still holds up. In fact, knowing the ending, knowing that the twist makes for a better second read because you can appreciate more the themes as they're developed throughout. For example, one of my favorite novels is Animal Farm by George Orwell. On this farm, a group of animals band together and revolt against the wicked humans and, and toss them out, drive them away. And led by two pigs, they create their own animal utopia, this animal farm, and they have this great commandment, all animals are equal. And community decisions are made by popular vote. And at first, things go well. But over time, the pigs start to elevate themselves as the leaders of the farm and start to take some privileges for themselves, like setting aside that the better food. They replace the community meetings with a committee of pigs who will make all the decisions for the farm. Later, there's a power struggle among the pigs, and fighting even breaks out. One pig named Napoleon gains dominance and becomes the de facto leader of the farm. He and his fellow pigs continue to exert themselves over the other animals. The other animals, though, they reason it's still better than it was under the humans. But over time, as the years pass, the pigs start to live more and more like the humans. They start to resemble the humans. They start walking upright. They start wearing clothes. They start carrying whips. And later, the great commandment is changed. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. In the end, the pigs end up reconciling with the humans. And they make an alliance with the humans against the other animals. And at the very end of the story, you have the animals looking at at the pigs and looking at the humans, and they can no longer tell them apart. Orwell wrote Animal Farm after World War II, as an allegory against Russia and Stalinism. But it has many layers, and it teaches many lessons, especially on the the nature of of mankind and government. Notable is the lesson on the corrupting nature of power. Power tends to corrupt, and even if it moves ever so slowly, it, it changes people, it changes ideals. And over time, they can look drastically different than before. But knowing the ending of the story, though, that that the pigs who led the revolution to free the animals in the end become indistinguishable from the humans, knowing the ending, it actually makes for a better read the second time around. You can appreciate all all the the, the subtleties and nuances of the themes developed, and it just it, it increases the impact of the work. And I know this is this is a trite example, but I bring it up because scripture is like this. Scripture has this depth, this value. There's an endless replay value to God's word. Every time you read, you're learning something new. You're, you're seeing something new. It, it leads to greater appreciation for what's there. And even though you, you know the end of the story, so to speak, you, you've read it before, you know basically what, what happens and what's going to happen even, it doesn't take away. It, it adds to the value of the Bible every single time. This is the depth of God's word. And on top of this, even even after you've read the Bible a hundred times and you know all the facts, it still feeds you because it not only provides head knowledge, but also heart knowledge. 
just something we need daily to be continually refreshed and renewed and charged by God's word. The Bible doesn't just instruct, it also convicts and corrects and rebukes and edifies, and we need all of that every day. This is why the Bible is timeless. Now, I bring this up because today we come to the very end of the book of Philippians. You can turn to Philippians 4 now. If you like, follow along. We'll be in Philippians a bunch today, Philippians chapter 4. We come to the very final passage, Paul's concluding words. And this wasn't planned, but it's taken us literally one year. We started Philippians November 20th, 2016, and here we are November 19th, 2017, all done. 41 sermons total for Philippians. Of course, a lot of other sermons sprinkled in between. But understand, although we're finishing Philippians, we're not done with Philippians. Because like all books of the Bible, it has enduring value. And although we we won't, we could just start over and preach it all again. And it would still be valuable and instructive and correcting. And we'd learn new things and see just more value. We will, however, use this occasion to reflect on what we have learned in Philippians. It's really great how in the final passage, chapter 4, verses 20 through 23, we find really a perfect opportunity to remember what Philippians has been all about. In fact, Paul manages to mention some key themes in his closing words. So we're going to pick up on these, take a look back, and remember all that we've learned in Philippians for one last benefit. And now, in fact, I think we could even appreciate more some of these themes as we look back, having now made our way through the whole letter. Now, that being said, there might be a few. In fact, I see a few people visiting today. This is your first time at this church. And so I guess, in a sense, you could say you picked the worst Sunday to visit from a preaching perspective, because he wants to join a book at the the last passage. You've missed the whole thing. But at the same time, as we reflect on what we've learned I trust you still get a good sense of what Philippians has been all about. And as we revisit some key lessons, that you'll still be edified yourself. But that's our plan for this morning, to finish Philippians, to reflect on its enduring value. And so let's go ahead now and and read this last passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 20 through 23, the, the conclusion. Where Paul says, now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now you may see such concluding verses as kind of random or trivial. One person actually thought I was just done with Philippians last week, that I wasn't going to preach these verses because, you know, it's just like the parting words, just, just move on. And I'm like, no way. In fact, they happen to lend themselves to a nice little outline that perfectly captures the essence of Philippians. So let me give you four final reflections on Philippians. To finish this off here, four final reflections on Philippians. And I'll tell you up front, it's on, it's on your bulletin, glory, greetings, gospel, and grace. And we'll start with number one, glory. Look back again at verse 20. Where he says, now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul comes to end the the body of his letter, he does so as he often does with the doxology, 
And if you don't know what, what a doxology is, just take the Greek word for glory, doxa, and the word for, for word, logos, and you cram them together, doxology. It's a word of glory, or a better definition, just like an outburst of praise, exclaiming praise to, to God. And Scripture is filled with these doxologies where the people of God, they rightly respond to who God is and what he has done. And what better way than with an, an outburst of praise? Paul is especially known for these doxologies where he interrupts himself as he's writing to pen a, an outburst of praise. This makes me think of Romans chapter 11. After Paul has spent 11 chapters just giving the Romans a, a serious dose of, of doctrine, and after Romans 9 through 11 where he just went into God's sovereignty with Israel and the church, he can't go any further. He has to stop and interrupt himself and just praise God, a doxology. And so he says in Romans 11:33, Oh, the depth of the riches, boast of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's in the chapter 11. It sounds like it would be the end of the book, but there's still four more chapters. It's just he couldn't help himself. And you'll find a line like this in pretty much all of Paul's letters. And it's simply, it's just how, how else can you respond to the truth when you really see the beauty of God's word and his revelation and you really believe it and you believe Christ, it, it, it affects you, it affects your heart and you respond. As you reflect on, on doctrine, which just tells us who God is and what he's done, it evokes praise. Some people think doctrine is, is dry. It's just meant for cold and lifeless people like you know seminary students. Might as well call them cemeteries, some would say. But such people are completely missing the point. It's the rich truths of God's word, they're not just meant to fill your mind and leave you like a cold database of information. The, the truths of God's word, they do fill your mind, and it overflows and spills into your heart. But there's so much that overflows as well. It has nowhere else to go but, but out of your mouth, out of your hands. And just you respond with praise, with a holy life. That's the impact of someone who truly beholds the truth of God's word. And the more you take in the, the truths of God's word, the more you will respond in praise. Like the astronomer who spends his days peering into the telescope, he sees more of the vastness of the universe and he can gasp more at the wonder of it. And likewise, the more you stare into the face of God as seen in Scripture, the more it's going to impact you, and you will respond in what better way but, but praise and worship. And similarly, Philippians 4 here, Paul, he, he ends a little bit closer to the end with another one of those doxologies. It's brief but powerful. Now, specifically, his, his word of praise comes right on the heel of the mention of God's glory from verse 19. So look back at verse 19, where he says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is a recognition that all we have, all we need, comes from God. He supplies us and gives us everything from life and breath, food and clothing, forgiveness and, and salvation. Like James says in James 1.17, every good thing given 
And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And accordingly, what do you have right now that you did not receive in one way or another by grace? What do you have? Nothing. Therefore, how can you boast? There's no boasting for the Christian ever, at least not in self, not because of who we are, what we've done. Even if you're wealthy, you were born into such circumstances or had such a life all by God's grace, his simple kindness and goodwill. It all traces back to God and his just favor toward us and his people. But this is why we we can't glory in self or praise self. But all of our praise is directed to God and, and God alone, from whom all blessings flow. And do you really believe that? That he's the one from whom all blessings flow? And are you responding accordingly? Look back to chapter 3. We'll be bouncing all around Philippians. Thankfully, it's, it's short, so you don't have to turn far. But back at chapter 3, verse 3, people are often surprised, but Philippians is such an autobiographical letter by the Apostle Paul. It's not normally what you think of, but he tells us a lot about just his life, his past. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, He's responding to false teachers building a contrast. He says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That word for glory there in verse 3, it means literally to boast, to exalt in. And you can see here Paul's boast. It's, it's not self, but Christ. He's not boasting in his personal accomplishments. That's what he means puts no confidence in the flesh, his own deeds or merit or effort. It's accounted as nothing. It's all loss in God's perspective. And Paul, after this, goes on to list his own previous accomplishments, all the things he used to rely on for his salvation. He used to be one of those guys who thought, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a super religious Jew. I'm you know, of the right tribe, the right lineage. I keep the law. That's good enough to get me into heaven, right? But in coming to Christ, you realize all that means nothing before God. And your own deeds, your own efforts, your own contribution accounts for nothing. You can't pay for a single one of your sins. Your only hope then is what? Christ and his work. And so he says, verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. All of his own efforts and accomplishments, they, they just count for nothing. He took all of his badges of honor, his birthright, his lineage, his keeping of the law, being part of the right tribe, just everything he had going for him. He put it on the scales, and it it came out weighing nothing. He thought, you know, this would be a great weight of virtue before God. Surely God will accept me because I'm so good, but it it counts for nothing. When you see the, the magnitude of your sin, all that you contribute doesn't offset that balance at all. But he came to see Christ, the face of Christ, the good news of Christ, who offers full forgiveness by his work on the cross. And Paul realized to gain him, it's worth losing everything else. And that's what you must do 
to count all his loss, gain Christ by faith, where he alone becomes your trust, your hope, your, your confidence. That's why we put no confidence in the flesh, he said, but we exalt, we glory in Christ. He's the Savior. It's not about our deeds and accomplishments, but his deeds and accomplishments, namely his work on the cross. That's the only work that saves, and we can be saved just by virtue of trusting in that work. And so Paul, he's willing to count all loss for the sake of gaining Christ, and he just wants to be found in Christ. And so verse 9, he continues his desire to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I mean, I never have thought of Philippians before as being really the best passage in Scripture to, to understand the righteousness issue, but here it is. This verse makes it so clear. We need to be perfectly righteous to enter heaven. That's the standard, perfect righteousness. We are not perfectly righteous. We're not even close. We are far and away. And Paul's accomplishments, they, are, they, they far outweigh yours, but even his accounted for, for nothing because we're defiled. We can't please God in any, in any respect on our own. But Christ, he's perfectly righteous. And by virtue of his work and our faith in him, we can be forgiven of all of our sins and, and then granted Christ's own perfect righteousness, credited to our account by faith, where God now looks at our account and instead of being bankrupt, we are seen as righteous as Christ. That is how we, we enter heaven, by faith in Christ and the righteousness he gives. And so again, we've learned this before, but let's reflect and remember, this is why we glory in Christ Jesus. And we boast in the cross. To the world, it's foolishness, right? The cross, a dead Messiah hanging on a tree. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. We see the power of the cross. By his person as the incarnate God-man, and by his work, his self-giving sacrifice on the cross, Christ is worthy of, of praise and glory. And so to keep backtracking, that's what Paul reminded us of in chapter 2. Look back now at chapter 2, verse 6. Speaking of Christ, it says, Who, chapter 2, verse 6, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, just a pinnacle passage on the self-giving love of Jesus and his supreme humility in not only coming to earth, taking on a human nature, but then going to death, death on a cross for us. Hence, verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And see, it, it always ends up coming back to, to glory, the glory of God. We glorify God the Father, God the Son. Indeed, it was the Father's plan and prerogative to send the Son into the world to reconcile sinners to himself. And even more, in sending his only begotten Son to secure our salvation, God the Father enables us to become his sons and daughters. And so we become his children. He becomes our Father. This is the miracle of, of adoption. Like Romans 8:15 says, you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. God, through Christ, even makes us his own children. Does this not make God worthy of your praise? Like, must he do something more? To, to gain your approval, your favor, your, your worship? Is this, is this not enough? Is, was the sending of Christ not enough to demand your life and your, your response, your, your, your whole existence lived over unto him? We know that it's more than enough. Salvation in Christ demands our life and it transforms our life such that we live for him. We seek to be conformed to him all for his glory. And just to backtrack a little bit further, back to chapter 1, this is what Paul says near the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10, he's encouraging us that we may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And you'll see that over and over again. It always cycles back to the glory and praise of God for whom all blessings flow. In Philippians, we've learned so much about this triune God and, and the supreme blessing he's given to us, namely life in Christ, new life, eternal life in Christ. And so it's only fitting for Paul to end and for us to end on this note of doxology, a word of praise, an outburst of thanksgiving and glory to God for all that he's done. And this is certainly not a lesson to be forgotten. And you just make sure that, that you are giving God the glory in your own life each and every day, remembering, like, like Rod was saying, thanking him for all that you have, not just today, not just on Thanksgiving, but every day living a life of, of worship for all that he's done for us. So first of these final reminders, glory the second would be greetings. Greetings. In the ancient world, they had a, a standard way of ending personal letters. They would simply say farewell or good luck or goodbye. Nothing really surprising here. And today we have our own cultural kind of standard way of, of ending a letter. If you were to write a letter to a friend or a coworker or even a stranger, there's a good chance you would end that letter and at the end you would say, Sincerely, just something we do. It's the proper, you know, business-like, at-arm's-length response. But Paul, in closing his letters, he, he never used the typical ending to his letters as found in the ancient world. His final words, rather, they're always warm and, and cheerful. You can sense that there's a fellowship in his words between him and the churches. And this is the case here. Look at verse 21 now, back at chapter 4. Again, verse 21. 
He says next, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. Now, Paul, he does customarily conclude his letters with with such a greeting. Sometimes he includes a large catalog of people who he names by name and and greets. Sometimes he keeps it short and sweet, like like here. But always, you you can just tell that his greetings showcase the love and the unity of the church. First notice, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now, real quick, if you come from a Catholic background, you might be a little thrown off by this. Because to the Roman Catholic Church, a saint is someone who, because of his supreme virtue and merit and good deeds, has already been exalted in heaven, which just means they were so good on earth that they skip a long stay in purgatory and they go straight to heaven, they're exalted. And then back on earth, these saints are elevated to the status of sainthood by a decree of the Pope called canonization where they're made holy, and these saints are then venerated, and their images are are plastered on stained glass windows and and little trinkets, which Catholics pray to for help. They pray to the saints. But none of this comes from the Bible. In fact, such an understanding of sainthood is completely contrary to the Bible. And that's because in the New Testament, it refers to all believers as saints, I trust most of you know that, but some of you may not have have known that. Every single believer in Christ is referred to as a saint in the New Testament. Anyone who's born again, anyone who who is truly saved in Christ, you're a saint. You don't have to wait for a decree of the Pope. You're already a saint by God's decree and calling. This is how the word saint is used in the New Testament. This is how Paul uses the word saint 40 times to refer to all believers I think John MacArthur uh, nails it when he says, saints are not people to be worshipped, saints are people who worship. And actually in the New Testament, the word saint, literally it just means holy ones, or set apart ones, sanctified ones. God is holy, therefore we are to be holy. God is set apart from all sin, therefore we are to be set apart from all sin. And indeed this holiness, it's what we have as saints In Christ Jesus, like verse 21 says, in Christ Jesus. Christ died to make us holy, to save us, to separate us from sin, to set us apart unto himself as his possession. And now it's it's our union with him and salvation that that gives us that holiness we need to be accepted in, in God's presence. Christ died to make a people holy for himself and to unite that people into one set-apart holy body. And so today when, when Catholics speak of saints, it, it, it almost evokes a, a sense of disunity in the church because, you know, the saints, they're like the super special Christians. They're up there. We're down here. They're on the fast track. We're on the slow track, the haves, the have-nots. But in the New Testament, rather, a mention of saints, it, it always actually brings up the unity of the church because it's a reference to to all of us and what we all are in Christ. You know, we're not holy, we're sinners, but by virtue of Christ's finished work applied to us, we're made holy in God's sight. And he sets us apart, all of us together, as one holy bride, one holy flock, one holy body, the church. And it's this shared union in Christ that really forms the basis of the church's unity, 
it's, it's this unity that, that kind of comes out of Paul's greeting here. It's a simple greeting, but it really has under it that this unity of the church, that we're all saints in Christ. Just think about that. You have these, in Philippians, you have these two groups of people. They're separated by hundreds of miles, the Romans, the Philippians, yet they're, they're knit together in Christ. They're one in Christ. They've all been made children of God by faith. That makes them brothers and sisters. In the ancient world, Christians, they started calling each other brothers and sisters, and that was very uncommon back then. And Christians were ridiculed for calling people who aren't their relatives brothers and sisters. Well, we'll take that ridicule because in Christ we share a deeper bond than even family. It's the bond of, of holiness in him. And this is the unity of the body of Christ. I've been able to go to New Zealand a couple of times with this church, going down there, visiting our old missionaries, speaking at the Impact Bible Conference. And every time you meet, you know, most of these people, I don't know them. They don't know me. They're the people that go to the church down there, mostly strangers. But there's an instant just connection and fellowship and love in Christ. It's, it's really special. I remember our host family, Gavin and Jeanette, they took us in. Just We were like strangers to them, but there's an immediate fellowship. We have the same Lord, the same faith. We're a Pacific Ocean apart, but we believe the same. We, we love the Lord the same. And the second time I went to New Zealand, I, I stayed with them again. In reality, I still like, in the grand scheme of things, I barely know these people. But it felt like seeing old friends who you know, we're, we're used to be best friends with, even though I barely know them. That's just the, the unity, the profound unity of the true church. And if you've been around this past year, you know that unity has been a, an essential theme to Philippians. It seemed the Philippian church was struggling a little bit with this unity, allowing some personal preferences and personal conflict to, to interrupt the bond they have as brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul has a lot to say about it. If you turn back to chapter 1, you might remember this was the opening exhortation. After his long introduction, this is the first real command in Philippians to the church, and it has to do with their unity. Chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is how he begins, and he will carry throughout the emphasis on their, their togetherness, their, their oneness that needs to be there. In fact, to, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means to live as one in the church, to not let sin separate and divide us, but to come together. That's part of how we as a church live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then you can't forget chapter 2. We spent many, many weeks on this. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says a little bit later, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is such a classic passage that I hope you don't soon forget, just because we'll move on from Philippians, that you don't forget this. This is Christianity 101. This is like biblical counseling 101. This is marriage and parenting 101. This passage right here. And like the Philippians, we too need to be constantly reminded of our call to unity. To, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We have it in Christ. We've been made brothers and sisters in one holy body. We need to preserve it. Like Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father who's over all. We're all brothers and sisters now, and we can't let sin, and we're still sinners too, we can't let that sin separate us from one another. Rather, be humble, forgive one another, and show the love of Christ to others. This is how the church will, will functionally live as one, and that's how the church makes a huge impact to the world and leaves behind a witness by taking seriously such reminders and calls to unity and then living it out. And so all this is behind these greetings. And speaking of the church's witness, though, a third reminder, a third reflection from Philippians. Number three is gospel. Number three, gospel. This comes from verse 22, again, back in chapter four. Verse 22. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, first off, for such a short letter, Paul sure has a lot to say about the gospel. It's actually another prominent theme or sub-theme. Of course, the content of the gospel is all over the place. Paul reminding us of the righteousness we have by faith in Christ through his work on the cross. But even directly, back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is thankful for the Philippians because they have participated in the gospel with him from the very first day. As Paul was serving the gospel, defending and confirming it, chapter 1, verse 7, he is thankful for them again because they contributed by their faithful giving and support. We just read chapter 1, verse 27, where he exhorted them and us to strive together for the faith of the gospel, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You get to chapter 2, Paul commends Timothy, his faithful partner in the gospel, Chapter 4, Paul even commends Yodia and Syntyche, these two ladies who, despite their personal conflict, they still had shared Paul's struggle for the gospel. And so for such a short letter, the gospel is really painted on, on all these walls. Now, that being said, you might wonder what chapter 4, verse 22 has to do with the gospel. Again, verse 22, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You have to remember again the circumstances of Paul's writing Philippians. We've said this many, many times now, but Paul had been imprisoned in Rome for preaching Christ. This was his first Roman imprisonment, which basically was like a, a solitary confinement for two years while he was awaiting trial before Caesar. He was allowed to stay in his own rented quarters, but he was literally chained to a Roman guard 24-7 or kept under guard. 
he was able to receive visitors, and, and through this, he kept evangelizing. He kept sharing the gospel with the, with the guards, with visitors. Paul's not the type of guy who's going to just stop preaching Christ because he's in some shackles. So he let it out. In fact, remember chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. You can look there. Chapter 1, 12 and 13, where Paul says, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, he's talking about his imprisonment, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. If you recall it, it was through Paul's unjust imprisonment that the gospel actually advanced into uncharted territory. It went farther and and, and faster into the, the government of Rome than it ever would have before. And Paul had always dreamed of going to Rome and evangelizing, and surely he dreamed of even gaining an audience with the government officials and even with Caesar himself. But listen, that was not going to happen anytime soon. If it weren't for Paul's imprisonment, Caesar may never have heard the gospel. These government officials, they never would have heard the gospel. But God brought Paul into Rome through the back door, through the prison door. But in doing so, God actually gave Paul an audience with the Roman establishment. Even Caesar himself, Paul later was able to, in his defense, still get the gospel in there. And the result was now the gospel was becoming well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, he says. This refers to that imperial guard that guarded Paul day and night. And the result was some of them even got saved. Some people, through the circumstances of his imprisonment, came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. We know that from, well, chapter 4, verse 22, this concluding verse. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Who's that talking about? Caesar's household was a designation that referred to Caesar, his family members, his officers, his slaves, his officials, and the Praetorian Guard. It's like today we, we talk about the White House, and by that we can mean the president, his family, the vice president, the cabinet, the, his staff, the Secret Service. And so Caesar's household refers to the Roman establishment. And we learn here, look, some of them had come to Christ, surely through Paul's preaching. And now there are these new believers in Rome, and they were sending their greetings to the Philippian church. And just just think about that and remember that lesson, that the gospel, it marches on. Christ is building his church, but he doesn't always do it as you may expect. Sometimes through, through roundabout circumstances, he will ordain things for the preaching of the gospel, for the gospel to go somewhere it, it never would have otherwise. Like we think of our, our old friends from our old church, they were newly married, he was fresh into seminary, and then his, his wife was paralyzed from the waist down. And no idea, she didn't fall down, just a, a, maybe a virus. They still don't know. They never found out. Just overnight, and you're, then you're paralyzed. In UCLA Medical Center for a long time, running tests, they couldn't find out, like, how do you just get paralyzed? Medical mystery. But, you know what? They preached the gospel a lot in that hospital, sang a lot of hymns in that hospital room. 
And, and God calls us to be ready with the gospel, sometimes through our suffering for such a time as this, that the gospel would go to places it wouldn't go otherwise. And who would have thought Paul would finally get to visit Rome, but as a prisoner? And you might think, you know, what was me here? I had these great plans, now I'm stuck in jail. But through his great trial, God brought the gospel into the very heart of darkness, Caesar's household. That, that was as dark as it gets in the ancient world. There were some, some wicked things going on in Caesar's household. But the light had its effect, and, and some were saved. And from this, we get another reminder, like the Philippians, to be about the business of the gospel. God can, and he does work in mysterious ways, that, as it has been said. And even in, in the darkest places and at the darkest times, the light still shines. In fact, it shines brighter the darker it is. And so you just let the light shine. The power of salvation is in the gospel, so you just let it out. You participate in the work of the gospel. You might think America is pretty far gone, like ancient Rome, and yeah, we're, we're on that trajectory for sure. But God's still working. So trust God, and, and like the Philippians, you just heed this reminder you just worry about this. You just participate in the work of the gospel. Partner in the work of the gospel by sharing, by giving, by living like the Philippians. You make this your work as well. And watch what God does. Be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now as a final reminder, a final reflection, number four would be grace. Grace. Glory, greetings, gospel, grace. It works, right? pretty good. Verse 23. Thank you. I'm proud of that. Verse 23, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In the last verse, we actually see a couple of themes pop out, both grace and Jesus himself. Both have played a prominent role in Philippians. And first, Philippians, it is truly saturated with Jesus, just references to Jesus. Again, most you don't think of this, but it's, it's actually one of the most, given the verse numbers. Paul mentions the Lord about 40 times in Philippians. That's about one in every three verses. He's saying something about the Lord. That's a lot. His mind is, is filled with Christ, and it just pops out. It spills out. This is where, remember, Philippians is where Paul says, as we sung this morning, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jesus was his treasure, and following suit was the Lord's grace. Whenever Paul thought about the Lord, he thought of grace. It's not surprising then that grace basically became Paul's calling card. He greets believers by grace, and without fail, in every single one of his letters, he concludes by wishing grace, God's grace, on the churches. Philippians is no exception Paul, in a way, he actually finishes Philippians much like he started. Look back at the very beginning, Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. The very beginning, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got mention of, of the saints, of Christ, of grace. Why grace, though? Why does Paul always us pick on the concept of grace? 
Well, in short, it's the one resource that believers need all the time. We just need God's grace, always. What is grace? It is God's unmerited favor. It is his undeserved blessing. It's getting what you don't deserve, the the free gift of God. You can't earn grace or buy it. When you do get it, you, you didn't deserve it. It's just God's free blessing on your life according to his perfect will. And it's this grace, though, that that saved us and gave us new life. It's God's grace that sanctifies us and and preserves us. God's grace will carry us through, which is why Paul always wishes and prays for more of God's grace on his people, on God's people. It's something we need for every moment of our lives. We need God's grace to live for him and to glorify him. And just as with salvation, this grace is ours in Christ Jesus, he says in verse 23. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus. The grace that we need to live for God and worship God and and obey God, it's found in Christ. It comes from Christ. You know, in Philippians chapter 4, we're told to rejoice in the Lord, live in harmony in the Lord, stand firm in the Lord. Christ is really at the center of it all, and all that God calls us to do, we can only do by by the Lord's grace. We just, we need grace. And this is why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And in chapter 1, verse 6, he's confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're called to endure, to persist, to serve the Lord until the end. And we must, but the only way we can do this is by God's grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus enables you. And so you must constantly rely on him daily, trusting and following him. And I guess this is why in all of Paul's letters, there's really no better benediction than, than simply this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. This is what we need. This is what we have in the Lord. Our, our time is up now. Glory, greetings, gospel, and grace. Some, in a way, scattered thoughts from the end of Philippians, but in another way, they really, they really get at the core of Christianity. We've been learning so much about what the Christian life is all about from Philippians, and these four have a way of, of summarizing that. Glory, giving God praise, living for his worship. Greetings, preserving the unity of the Spirit, building up the body in love as one. Gospel, where you're living and and giving and sharing such that the gospel of Christ is made known. And then grace, depending on the grace of Christ, the grace which saves us and sustains us every day. We're going to move on now from Philippians in the future, but don't let these lessons move on from you. Just take them in, heed them, live them out, and see what God does. We'll end with Paul. Now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Well, our great God and and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we do praise you and, and, and pray and say to you be all the glory for all that you've done, for who you are. It's being our, our God, our Father. You created us, but then in saving us, you became our, our personal heavenly Father. You've made us your children, your sons and daughters. And and we thank you that we now have a home in heaven, not because of what we deserve or what we've earned, 
but all by, by grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent to, to purchase our salvation. That by his death and resurrection, all of our sins can be forgiven, which, which separated us from you. That we can be reconciled to you, to him, and, and, and included in this body. So we praise you for this. And we exalt the Lord Jesus for this supreme work. Lord Christ, you are worthy of, of the glory as well. And, and now we, we aim to follow you. We give you our lives. All that you've done for us, you do demand our all, and, and we are happy to, to live for you. Like Paul, may it be our refrain to live as Christ, to die as gain. That, may that be our heart's treasure as well. We've learned a lot, Lord. We're thankful for it. Your word is our rich treasure in, in, indeed. And it has that replay value that we can keep going back to it, learning more, and filling our hearts with more truth that we might uh, be refreshed, live for you, and worship each and every day. So may we take that to heart as well and continually draw from this well of Philippians to the praise and glory of your name. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen.